This is the Untold Civil War podcast, and we've got a special episode coming to you, especially if you're a fan of the movie Gettysburg like I am. On this episode, we'll be discussing Lee's forgotten general, A.P. Hill, and we'll be discussing it with A.P. Hill. Patrick Falsey is a renowned actor who is best known for his portrayal of Hill in the movie Gettysburg. What some might not know is that he was also behind the scenes on Gods and Generals and was a cavalryman in the miniseries Rough Riders. So without further ado, lights, camera, action. Welcome back to another episode of the Untold Civil War podcast. And today we will be discussing one of the most interesting characters of the Civil War. We'll be discussing General A.P. Hill. And with me today is General Hill. (laughs) Uh, Patrick Falsey is best known for his portrayal of A.P. Hill in the movie Gettysburg. And also as a historical coordinator for the movie Gods and Generals. But he also had a role in the miniseries Rough Riders, which I really want to get into. Growing up, I saw this man on the big screen, and he inspired my interest in the Civil War. And I'm sure he has done the same for many others of my generation. So it is a real privilege to have him on the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for asking me. Let's, uh, let's just get started. I want to ask you maybe a little bit of a personal question, but how did you find A.P. Hill? He was very theatrical. <laughs> He was uh, flamboyant. Basically, he was a man who uh, truly believed in honor. Don't mess with A.P. Hill. That was yes. the most important thing. Honor was very dear to him. And that's what attracted you to uh, portray him? Well, this goes way back. When I was eight years old, my parents gave me a book, The Golden Book of the Civil War, put out by American Heritage. You know, I'm eight years old, and I'm reading this book, and I see these pictures. And uh, two people that jumped out of the book was basically Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And just reading about Jackson and and Lee and finding out that both of these generals called out for this person, A.P. Hill, on their deathbeds. And so I think, let's see a little bit about about this person. And so reading about him, that he wore a red shirt and uh, he always was saving the day in the nick of time. And that's how I got involved with uh, General Hill and uh, just going on. And I was lucky enough to get the role in the movie Gettysburg. And so ever since then, I've been known as General A.P. Hill in the Civil War community. And uh, I try to honor him as much as I can. And you do a fantastic job of that. So for my Thank listeners you. who uh, might not know, let's, let's get into it. Can we get a background of uh, A.P. Hill himself? How did he start his career? Well, the thing about A.P. Hill is that he was born November 9th, 1825, and growing up in Culpeper, Virginia. Uh, his family were merchants. They didn't own any slaves. And what he would do is go hunting and fishing and horseback riding with his father. And his mother would read to him, read Shakespeare and military histories. And his favorite people were Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. And studying about Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, they wore a red sash or a red cloak or a cape. And he thought that was very theatrical. And the most important thing about it is that uh, he wanted to wear a red shirt, so to speak. He would call it his hunting shirt. So his men could see him on the field. That was the most important thing. So he could inspire the men and lead the men on horseback with his hunting shirt. And every time his men of the light division would see him wearing that shirt, they knew they'd be ready for action anytime soon. But he did not wear the red shirt all the time, only when the time came. And so basically uh, with him growing up and when he was 16 years old, he was admitted to the United States Military Academy at West Point. And before going to this point, his mother gave him something, a good luck charm. And whenever I put the uniform on of General Hill, I carry something in my pocket. Matter of fact, here it is. It's a ham bone. His mother <sighs> gave him a ham bone as a good luck charm. Wow. And this would remind him always of home, family, Virginia. That's what he lived for. Home, family, Virginia. That was very dear to him. Going to West Point, he would meet many people, obviously. Uh, he would make friends right away. He, he, he'd love to, uh, you know, he was a very fun-loving guy. He loved to go dancing, etc. And he made friends all the time while he was at West Point, except one particular person he met at West Point back there. And uh, this is 1842. It was a man by the name of Thomas Jonathan Jackson. Wow. And uh, if you want, we'll get into him a little bit later, okay? Right. Uh, but he also met McClellan, right? Absolutely. George McClellan. They yes. became very good friends. They uh, were roommates at West Point, matter of fact. And uh, what happened was that later on down the road, there was a woman by the name of Ellen Marcy. 
and Ellen Marcy and uh, A.P. Hill were engaged. They loved each other very much. They were about to be married, but somehow, some way, uh, she kind of uh, left A.P. Hill and started courting George McClellan and ended up marrying George McClellan. So that wow. kind of like is a background between the two generals. There's George some history McClellan there. And A.P. Hill over the month over the, over Ellen Marcy. <laughs> Did they ever uh, talk about that later on? I mean, you know, I know with the Civil War going on and everything, did they remain friends? I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. they did? Absolutely. Actually, uh, when Ellen Marcy and uh, George McClellan got married, AP was there, part of the wedding party. Oh, wow. And, and uh, yeah, and like I said, they remained friends and everything. And But the funny thing about it is that, you know, don't feel sorry for AP Hill. I mean, he did find someone and they, they were married. They, they, you know, loved each other as his wife. Kitty Morgan, who is the sister of a future Confederate general by the name of John Hunt Morgan. And, and we'll get into something later on down the road, but I just want to let you mention about, I know at some point we're going to talk about Antietam, which yes. you would call, but I would call Battle of Sharpsburg. Sharpsburg, of course. <laughs> but of course, during that battle where A.P. Hill wanted to prove to uh, Ellen Marcy who was the better man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens after uh, West Point exactly? Well, you see, he was part of the class of 1846, but he actually graduated in 1847 because he was very young and uh, he was around, well, 18 years old. And he decided to come to New York City for a little adventure. <laughs> and as well, um, the late, great Ed Bars, who always said that A.P. Hill went to New York City and had a date with a soil dove. <laughs> Well, because of that date, kind of had a uh, encounter and caught a venereal disease, okay? And yeah. he had to take a leave of absence from West Point, so he actually graduated in 1847. And it killed him because all his friends that he trained with as cadets ended up going to Mexico to fight in the Mexican War. Even the person he couldn't stand, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, because he'll consider this Jackson fellow who came from the western part of Virginia a country bumpkin, whereas Hill considered himself an aristocrat. It was two sides of a coin, basically, two different sides of a coin, Jackson and Hill. So finally, Hill ended up going to Mexico in 1847, and he was ready for action. He really was, and most of the action was over with. But uh, the description of A.P. Hill in Mexico was that he wore a flaming red shirt and a wide white sombrero. On him, he had two horse pistols, a large cavalry saber, two revolvers, and a large butcher knife. I tell you, no Mexican was safe with Hill around. But unfortunately, he gets sick in Mexico. He comes down with typhoid fever. Wow. So a few years later on down the road, uh, he goes to uh, Florida to fight the Seminole Indians. And what happens? He gets sick again. He comes down with yellow fever. So between the venereal disease, the typhoid fever, and the yellow fever, Hill is not a well person at all. Yeah. And I think that's something that we always forget about when we read about these big battles and such. A lot of these casualties that, you know, we sustain is from sickness, disease. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. More, more casualties occur, not for the battles or anything, but uh, people dying from disease, smallpox, measles, dysentery. I mean, so many things contributed to the death rate during the, uh, the war between the states. And, you know, even though uh, it seems like uh, A.P. Hill got sick so many times, at least he survived, right? A lot of people didn't. So Up to a certain point. <laughs> Up to a certain point, yeah. Yes, no, yeah. yes, no, he did survive. And during the war, the adrenaline kept him going, basically. It mm -hmm. really did not take over his body until later on in the war, yeah. those different right. ailments. But, but early on, uh, just uh, going into action, leading men into battle, it uh, was something that kept him going. It seemed like he was a real natural for that. Oh, absolutely. As I said, growing up, he, was, he would play soldiers and read all the books about military heroes, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, going into battle. One thing he always wanted to do is lead a lot of men in a desperate battle and win a victory. That's something he always wanted to do. And of course, wearing his hunting shirt. Yes. Do we know what branch he got when he uh, graduated West Point, where he was assigned? He was a second lieutenant. Okay. And then they're going into the artillery. And um, yeah, and then, like I said, continuing on. And then when the war broke out, he was a, uh, the, the war between the states, that is. In 1861, he became a colonel of the 13th Virginia. So where was he exactly when the, the war broke out? 
Well, actually, he was um, he was in the army, obviously, and yeah. um, he was in the navy. He was in the army, but he was really? working for the navy for the U.S. Coastal Service. Wow! And so when when the war clouds came over the country before Virginia seceded, he actually decided to uh, leave the army because he knew what was coming later on. And so he just gave his uh, basically his uh, you know life, so to speak, his reputation his career, his life to Virginia. As I said, it was always home, family, Virginia. And whichever way Virginia would go, he would follow it because his ancestors, his home, everything revolved around Virginia. And so when the war came out, he was with the 13th uh, Virginia Infantry and the first major of the war was, um, well, I would call it Manassas, but I yes. know a lot of Yankees would call it Bull Run. Bull Run. <laughs> But something happened during that battle on July 21st, 1861, is that the old person who haunted him, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, becomes the hero at Manassas and right. receives his name Stonewall. And all the headlines are all about Stonewall Jackson and his killing A.P. Hill. And what, where is A.P. Hill during the battle? Well, he's sent to guard the lower fords of the Bull Run for a possible federal flank attack. Which never right. comes. Which never happens, yeah. So, uh, again, he's in the shadow of Stonewall Jackson. And how else does he perform earlier on in the war? Uh, everybody loved him, training troops and uh, going into battle, etc. Just uh, the men loved him because after becoming a colonel of the 13th Virginia, then later on he becomes a, a brigadier general in February of 1862. And then... March, the uh, keeps going up, and then on Battle of Williamsburg, May the 5th, he distinguished himself at that battle and he gets promoted to Brigadier General. Then finally, on June 1st, 1862, when Robert E. Lee assumes command of the Army of Northern Virginia, A.P. Hill is a major general and he christens his new uh, command the Light Division. It's the largest division in the Army of Northern Virginia. At that time, it was 14,000 troops. So uh, he rose very quickly, and uh, he, had a, he had a good reputation then, and yet the, the best was yet to come. So he has this, this reputation. He, he's rising up the ranks. But as I understand it, he does have an interesting relationship with just his colleagues, right? There's, I mean, especially with Jackson. Yes, they always said that like uh, A.P. Hill never got along with anybody above his rank. Okay, yeah. Two of the biggest <laughs> uh, confrontations that he had was with Stonewall Jackson, because during the Seven Days campaign, you know, Jackson was the only general at that time who had a true reputation. And according to Robert E. Lee's plans, all of the movements and all the battles and all the confrontations with George McClellan and the Federals were to take place around the movements of Jackson. And three major battles that took place during the uh, Seven Days campaign, you got Mechanicsville, Gainesville, and Frazier's Farm. Jackson never shows up or he's always late. And the light division is always hit hard. And so that's another reason why A.P. Hill doesn't like Stonewall Jackson. And another person that Hill didn't get along with was James Longstreet. Because right. after the battles of, uh, around Richmond where you know, Lee saved the Confederate capital, there was a reporter for the uh, Richmond Examiner who attached himself with uh, the light division. His name was John M. Daniel. And he was wounded during the seven days, but then after recovering from his wound, he ended up writing glowing reports about A.P. Hill and the Light Division in the newspaper, the Richmond Examiner. But James Longstreet didn't believe half the stories in that newspaper. So he got in touch with the rival newspaper, the Richmond Whig. And so you have a newspaper war in Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy <laughs> between James Longstreet and A.P. Hill. And A.P. Hill, who's such a proud man, said, what's going on here? You know, what is all this stuff? You're trying to ruin my reputation? And so Longstreet gets so fed up with Hill, so Longstreet decides to place Hill under arrest. But A.P. Hill, the proud man, decides to challenge Longstreet to a duel. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Robert E. Lee decides the best thing for the Army of Northern Virginia was to transfer A.P. Hill out from under the command of, of Longstreet, basically of Longstreet, and Longstreet, put him under the yeah. command of Stonewall Jackson. Like I said, it, it was tough times for A.P. Hill. His commander over there was Longstreet there. He gets rid of Longstreet. He goes over to Stonewall Jackson. Now Stonewall Jackson's his commander. And so it's just, 
not the best of times, Brady, but he did get along with Robert E. Lee. And they had such a bond. They truly did love each other. So the fact that uh, whenever something was needed, A.P. Hill was Robert E. Lee's go-to guy, always. And over the course of time, Robert E. Lee even became the godfather to one of A.P. Hill's daughters. So that, that's how much that uh, they admired and respected each other. That's fantastic. That's really interesting. Uh, it it's, appears to me that w with those type of relationships, it really was APL had no choice but to get promoted, to get out from underneath these guys. <laughs> well, the men of his light division, uh, they truly admired him and they would do anything for him. And that truly was proven on September 17th, 1862, the bloodiest day of the Civil War, uh, Battle of Antietam or Sharpsburg, as I would say, yes. where he actually did save the Army of Northern Virginia and Robert E. Lee. He would uh, be at Harper's Ferry, the arsenal, which he had captured with Stonewall Jackson on the 15th of September. And Jackson decides to leave A.P. Hill behind to parole all the prisoners and send a lot of the supplies back to Virginia. And it was a great victory. It's one of the greatest Confederate victories of the war, which people really don't talk about because yeah. with the capture of that arsenal at Harper's Ferry, A.P. Hill and Jackson, they had uh, 12,000 Yankee prisoners, 13,000 stand of arms, 73 cannon and 200 wagons, all for the take. And so Jackson decides to leave. I mean, it's amazing. Hill behind to parole all the uh, prisoners and send the um, supplies back to Virginia. But then A.P. Hill feels like he might be left behind because they knew something was happening later on down the road. But it was the best thing that happened to A.P. Hill and the Light Division because his men got rest. His men got shoes. They got weapons, modern weapons, so to speak. They would trade in their smoothbore weapons for rifled weapons. And A.P. Hill got a brand new red shirt. So uh, everything worked out fine because early that morning of September 17th, at 6.30, a courier arrived from Sharpsburg. Lee needed help. And the only person who could help him because Lee did not have any reserves. It was all because A.P. Hill and the Light Division. So at that time, the Light Division consisted of uh, 6,000 men. So at 5.30, uh, 6.30 in the morning, by like 7 o'clock, the men were on the road to uh, the battlefield. And so uh, A.P. Hill, you know, on his sword with his red battle, fur, battle shirt, with the point of his sword, pushed his men. They could go on further and further and further going through these winding roads because it was a desperate situation because they knew this could be the end of the Army of Northern Virginia. And so when he started out with 5,000 men, uh, by the time he got through Boatless Fort, he would lose 500 then and men would start choking on the sidelines. And then, um, you know, he only made it to the battlefield with 3,000 men. But there was something special because while he was going there, he had a personal reason, not only to save Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, but there were three personal reasons why he wanted to get to the battlefield as quick as possible. First of all, he knew he was going against George McClellan. And as I mentioned earlier, he wanted to prove to Ellen Marcy who was the better man. Yeah. <laughs> also, there was, there was somebody else, Ambrose Burnside, Yankee general, and they were very good friends at West Point. And they were very good friends in the regular army prior to the Civil War. And uh, Burnside was a notorious gambler. And so at one point before the war, Burnside borrowed $8,000 from A.P. Hill. And he never paid him back. So <laughs> one way or another, Hill wanted Burnside to pay for that $8,000 loan. And then finally, of course, he wanted to prove to Stonewall Jackson that he was the one to save the Army of Northern Virginia. Stonewall Jackson always claimed victory at the Battle of Cedar Mountain, but actually it was A.P. Hill's victory for saving the day. And so uh, leaving A.P. Hill behind, he wanted to prove to one for everybody, don't mess with A.P. Hill. So he did save the day. And it was Robert E. Lee who, spying through his glasses, saw a column of troops coming closer and closer and closer to the battlefield. But they were wearing blue. It seems the light division, because of the rags they were in, decided to get new uniforms at the United States Arsenal at Harpers Ferry, but they were blue uniforms. And so while well, they saw this column of blue approaching, but then, excuse me, Robert E. Lee asked his aide to uh, go through his, spy through his glasses and tell what flags were they flying. They were flying the Virginia and Confederate flags. And so it was Robert E. Lee who said, it is A.P. Hill up from Harpers Ferry. And so that's where the expression of up came Hill from. It was Robert E. Lee. And so A.P. Hill got there in the right place at the right time and uh, saved the day.
That is great stuff. Matter of fact, the late, great Ed Bars, who I quoted earlier, at a Civil War conference said that on September 17th, 1862, that A.P. Hill was the best general of that day during the Civil War. So I'm proud of what he said. Oh, absolutely. I'd agree with that. Do we know how many miles that is? That they had to miles in seven hours. Wow. It's amazing. It's amazing what they did. It really is. I mean, just to think of it going all that over the terrain, uh, not stopping, just basically to stop it, maybe five minutes to draw a breath. And just to think of it, you have 5,000 men on the road. They're dusty, they're dirty. And then just think about the men behind, not, not the front brigades, but the, the rear brigades, mm-hmm. that they're choking all this dirt and everything. And there was no time. But that's what the AP Hill did, the light division. He trained it for speed. Get there in the right place at the right time. That's why he called it the light division. And so uh, he saved the day, and that's a, a great military feat, what he oh, accomplished. Absolutely. I uh, remember when I actually went through uh, basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, I still remember my drill sergeant who would, when we would do these ruck marches, we would march maybe 10 miles or so, and he would bring up, you know, the light division in AP Hill and what they could do, you know, in a day, you know, 17 miles, like you said. And uh, he'd give us a hard time since we couldn't do five or something. You know? <laughs> so he said, I'd say, I've been a reenactor for many years. I started out with the, the 14 Tennessee Archers Brigade. This is going back to 1979, matter of fact. So I, I covered a lot of ground. And so um, over the course of time, when I got the role of AP Hill in the movie Gettysburg, then everybody in the Civil War community associated me with Hill. And so I kept his presence known, I wanted to honor him. And so I became, you know, of course, AP Hill reenacting all the battles, et cetera. And one of my proudest moments was just a few years ago for the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Strasburg, whatever. So uh, we reenacted up came Hill, the light division going from Harpers Ferry to the Antietam battlefield. And that was one of my proudest moments of actually doing that, leading the men and going across Boatless Ford. I mean, even the water was like waist deep and just going across there. And uh, there was, what, 100, 125 of us and only about 75 made it through the whole march and everything. And of course, I had to make it because I'm General A.P. Hill. But that was one of my proudest moments of, of doing that, of keeping the light division in A.P. Hill alive and uh, truly honoring them for what they did. Fantastic. And were you wearing your battle shirt then? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And I trained for that. I want you to know during the summer, I would walk several miles to uh, just get my legs in shape and and wearing the brogans. Originally, I wanted to ride a horse by doing this, but they figured that by by safety, you know, because going through boatless Ford and everything, the horse, you know, may skid or what have you, may spook or what have you. But I I actually did uh, march with the men. And I'm proud I did that with the men because uh, A.P. Hill, would never do anything that he didn't want his men to do. If he could do it, then they could do it. And then they all felt that way, you know, let's follow the general in his red battle shirt, his hunting shirt. That is great. So, and then taking it to another part, you know, as the war progresses, I don't know if you've actually, um, it just comes to mind if you've read Jeff Shara's books. Oh yeah, we go way back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know in, I think it's the last of the trilogy, right? Last Full Measure? Last Full Measure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember reading about A.P. Hill, and there were these moments where he really was plagued by his illness. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, he was a great division commander. I don't think anybody was better as a division commander than A.P. Hill. But when he got that next grade up, lieutenant general, mm-hmm. it took him out of his element because he loved to lead men in battle on horseback, you know, waving his sword, riding to the sound of the guns. But as a corps commander, you had to stay behind. And that was not his style at all. Because as a corps commander, you're actually commanding a mini army. And you had to take care of the logistics with the mini army. And that was not his deal. And so at that point in 1863, just prior to the Gettysburg campaign, started feeling the pressure of that position. And plus the lingering ailments of the previous sicknesses that he had gone through with the venereal disease and typhoid fever, the yellow fever, everything was, was coming upon him. And so he had just had to uh, deal with that. And because of that, he was not himself during the first day at Gettysburg. He was not himself during the wilderness. He had to uh, leave, take a leave of absence during the Battle of Spotsylvania in 1864. 
And then during the siege at Petersburg, there were times when he had to take a, a sick leave, unfortunately. But he was dependent on, he was the only one Robert E. Lee could depend on at that time because Longstreet was still recovering from his wounds and uh, General Yule was having his problems. And A.P. Hill, even though he was suffering, still managed to uh, perform his duty faithfully. Well, what happens towards uh, the, the end of the war? Well, what happened was that he had to take a leave of absence, sick leave, so to speak, uh, during the month of March, 1865. And of course, while this is going on, it's, there's been a siege. General Grant and his army basically surround the Petersburg-Richmond area. And uh, while they're getting stronger and stronger, the Army of Northern Virginia is getting weaker and weaker. And so is A.P. Hill at that time. So Hill's not feeling well. He takes a leave of absence. So he's still in the Petersburg, Richmond area. But then he finally comes back to duty. He didn't have to. He still had his papers with him, <clears throat> his sick leave papers. So on uh, March 31st, he's back in the saddle, so to speak. But then he spends 15 hours 15 hours in the saddle on April the 1st, checking all the battlement emplacements, all the defensive areas, just to keep those federal troops from breaking into the uh, area. And so he finally gets to rest somewhat on the evening of April 1st, but then he couldn't sleep. So early in the morning, maybe around 1 a.m. on April 2nd, he gets up, he's in pain. His wife is with him, she's seven months pregnant. His two little girls are in the other room. And he decides to get dressed. And instead of putting on his red battle shirt, he puts on a white linen shirt that his wife had made for him. And he puts on his shell jacket and his coat because it's, it's cool at that time. He puts on his hat and so to speak and his cape. And so he, he leaves and he decides to go to uh, Robert E. Lee's headquarters. So he takes with him uh, his chief of couriers, Sergeant Tucker and a trooper Jenkins. So they go to Robbie Lee's headquarters. General Longstreet comes by and they just talk about the situation early that morning on April 2nd, 1865, because in the distance they could hear cannon fire. But then around, oh, say 2 a.m., 4 to the 3, what have you, a uh, courier comes at the headquarters and say there's a break in the line. It's A.P. Hill's area. So Hill gets on his horse champ, starts riding with his two couriers, and Robert E. Lee cries out to him to take care of himself. Take care of yourself, General Hill. So General Hill is riding on the Boyden Plank Road. It's close near uh, five o'clock in the morning, and so it's still dark. And so while riding on the Boyden Plank Road, Hill and his two couriers see uh, two Yankees in the road. And so they draw out, the, 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 the Confederates draw out their pistols, and Hill cries out to surrender. And they did. And so those two Yankees surrendered to A.P. Hill, and A.P. Hill decides to send those two Yankees to be interrogated by, to, to Robert E. Lee. And so Trooper Jenkins takes them, but then Hill's getting closer to Harry Heath, General Heath's headquarters, to rally the men to stop those Yankees from breaking through the breach. But then Hill and Sergeant Tucker sees a company of Union soldiers in the road there on the Boyden Plank Road, and too many for them to handle. So they decide to wheel over to a wooded area and just prior to going through the thick of the woods, A.P. Hill says to Sergeant Tucker, if anything should happen to me, you must report it to General Lee. So while they're riding through this area, two Yankees of the 138th Pennsylvania, Corporal John Mark and Private Dan Welford, see these two Confederates riding toward them. They don't know who they are, but they're two Confederates. So they're both hiding behind a tree. And so the two Confederates see the Yankees. And so they get closer and closer and closer. And so... They're within 10 yards of one another when Hill calls out for them to surrender and two Yankees fired. Well, Dan Wolford's shot misses both Hill and Tucker, but the shot fired by Corporal John Mark comes towards Hill, severs his thumb, goes through his chest, rips through his heart, and kills him instantly. Hill is dead before he even hits the ground. Tucker sees his general lying there on the ground, grabs Hill's horse, champ. It's a superior horse. He grabs that horse and decides to ride that to Lee's headquarters because he remembered A.P. Hill's last order. If anything should happen to me, you must report it to General Lee. So finally, Tucker does arrive to Lee's headquarters and tells of the death of A.P. Hill. And Lee is so filled with emotion as, as tears filled in his eyes and in a choking voice, he would say, he is now at rest. And we who are left, are the ones to suffer. 
Well, one week later, on April 9th, Robert E. Lee would surrender the Army of Northern Virginia. But that's not the end of A.P. Hill. Five years later, on October the 12th, 1870, Robert E. Lee is in Lexington, Virginia, dying from a stroke. And at 9.30 that morning, his family gathers around him. And just prior to his very last words, which were, strike the tent, everyone in the room heard Robert E. Lee say, tell A.P. Hill he must come up. So the greatest Confederate general of all, Robert E. Lee, his mind must have been wandering to the battlefield on those last moments of his life calling out for his general, General A.P. Hill, to once again, save the day. That is fantastic. I mean, what does that say about uh, Hill's legacy today? I mean, that is- It's, uh... it's something about him. See, every year on April the 2nd, I go to Petersburg to uh, a place in the woods, and there's a marker there, spot where A.P. Hill was killed. And I've been doing this for the last 20 years. And it's something that's become a tradition. I'm there with the Sons of Confederate Veterans, the AP Hill Camp, and people from around the area. They converge. And there have been times where I've had over 100 people there honoring General Hill. He's been known as Lee's Forgotten General. But on that day, April 2nd, I, I just hope that he's remembered because he's just somebody who, who gave his life for what he believed in, home, family, Virginia. What happened to his remains Did his fam and, and then his family? What happened was that after he was killed, members of the 5th Alabama Battalion, who was A.P. Hill's uh, headquarters guard, recovered the body and they brought him back <clears throat> to Mrs. Hill. And so they wanted to uh, bury him in Richmond, Virginia, at Hollywood Cemetery, the place of heroes, where Jeb Stewart is buried there. But unfortunately, uh, being that the city was being overrun by the Yankees at that time, they decided, well, we'll take him up to Culpeper. But Culpeper, Virginia, where he was born, is over 100 miles away. And due to the situation with the Yankees within the vicinity, they decided uh, a few days later, well, we can't, take him, we can't bury him in Richmond. We can't take him to Culpeper. Let's bury him near here. So there was a private cemetery, the Winston Cemetery in Chesterfield County, which basically on the borderline of uh, Petersburg and Richmond. <clears throat> so they buried him there. And uh, a lot of people don't know this, but he, he specified that he wanted to be buried standing up. So they buried him standing up. No religious you know, ceremony or anything like that, but they, they buried him standing up in that cemetery. A few years later, they decided to move him to Hollywood Cemetery and he was buried there. Again, <laughs> standing up. Well, members of his light division and his third corps, which he commanded during a lot of part of the later part of the war, they wanted to honor him because in 1890, there was a great equestrian statue of Robert E. Lee there in Richmond. And so they feel that A.P. Hill deserved a special honor. So they decided to uh, move his body in 1891 to an area in Richmond as uh, a new residential area that was being built. It was on Laburnum Avenue and Hermitage Road. And so they put him in special vault there, and then they erected a statue, which they unveiled on Memorial Day weekend. It was May 30th, 1892. And over 15,000 people attended the ceremony. Wow. So that expression of, uh, it's tough to keep a good man down. Well, A.P. <laughs> Hill was buried three times. And uh, every year, like I said, I do a special ceremony on April 2nd, honoring him at the spot that he died. And every so often, I do go there and place a wreath at his, um, you know, burial site where his remains are. And it's, it's something because it's at an intersection and it's, you got to take your life in your own hands going across this intersection, maybe carrying a wreath, you know, and saluting the general there. Yeah. But uh, that, that's where he is currently. Wow, fantastic. And uh, I think now it might be appropriate just to move on to things that you've done as far as the, the movie Gettysburg is concerned, I know Gettysburg has been a movie that has inspired so many people to get into the Civil War. How was working on that project? Oh, that was a dream come true. I worked on that movie five years before we even started filming. Wow. I met Ron Maxwell, the director and the screenwriter, in Gettysburg in 1988. 
This was during the, the 125th anniversary of the, uh, the battle for the reenactment. And so I met him there. And at that time, I was still with the, the 14 Tennessee Archers Brigade Hills Corps. And while I was uh, there, you know, we spoke for a little bit. But then the following year at a reenactment at Newmarket, he decided to bring a, uh, a film crew and a casting director with him. You know, he didn't have any funding or anything just for his own personal records and everything just to find out about reenactors because originally he wanted to film this movie in Europe. But then after seeing the reenactment, he said, I must film it here with the reenactors. They know their history. They know the uniforms. They know the maneuvers. They know all this. So I must do it there. So he decided to go to Newmarket uh, the following year in, 18, uh, in 1989 and um, basically, you know, get file. And so I knew he was going to be there. And I'm a professional actor as long as also as a historian. And so I'm there when it came time to audition for him. So I had my 8 by 10 glossy. And um, before you audition, they give you a piece of paper. It was called a side, which has dialogue on it. And you were supposed to read in front of the director and the casting director. And so being I'm an experienced actor, I memorized all the lines. So I went in there. And it wasn't for AP Hill. It was just for a, a, a soldier. So I, I did the reading and you know, out of my memory, what have you. And they were impressed. And so being that Ron Maxwell and the casting director both lived in New York City, and so did I. We all started seeing each other on a regular basis, and I ended up helping Ron uh, be his historical advisor on on uh, the film, you know, to be shot later on in uh, 1992. And we were to take trips to Gettysburg just to check out different locations. And uh, I would have meetings with the National Park Service and the Pennsylvania Film Commission in Harrisburg with Ron, and getting together with. Um, Joy Todd, who at that time was a casting director, just going over different actors. And I would provide all the photographs of the actual generals and they would line them up with the actors. And so it got to be something where the movie Gettysburg is based on the Killer Rangers by Michael Shara. And my job was to, uh, you still got to keep the spirit of the Killer Rangers just to clean up a few things, you know, historically. Right. And, but uh, it, was, it was something special. And just to, to, to work on that film and getting to know a lot of the actors because I had to do the research and send a lot of the information to the actors so they can start doing their own research. And there would be times when I would receive phone calls from the actors to uh, pick my brain, so to speak. And so that was just a thrill. And just to get the role of AP Hill was something special. And so uh, somebody who I admired and I got to portray a true historical character who I admired in the film Gettysburg. And uh, I got to say, when I first watched the movie, it's great. When I rewatched it in, I guess they call it like the director's cut with all the deleted scenes, it was like right. watching a whole new movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, when the movie was yeah. released originally, four hours and 14 minutes. But then with the director's cut, it, it goes uh, over five hours. Yeah. And so it's something special. It's, it's just because when we originally shot the movie, we were shooting for television because Ted Turner was kind enough to uh, put a lot of money involved in it, originally uh, $12 million. And this was for his TNT network. But then after he got involved and seeing a lot of the uh, footage in his theater down in Atlanta, he decided to go big screen. And so we expanded the filming and decided to uh, go big screen to release the film in uh, 1993 to uh, 200 theaters around the country. And that movie really is, should be seen on the big screen, absolutely. And with the music and, and the acting and the terrain on the battlefield, because we actually did shoot 26 days on the, the battlefield and everything was on location in Adams County. And so being on the set as, as General Hill, and if not as General Hill, then being around, just keeping an eye on things as historical advisor, it was, it was something special. Just working on that was truly was a dream come true. And I'll, I'll always remember the experience and it has touched so many people absolutely because um it's used as a teaching tool people have seen the movie they show it in in, in schools they show it at uh, military you know uh academies they read the killer angels they see the movie and it is something special that uh it can continue on for future generations oh yeah oh yeah i you know i i'll deny it every day but uh, my girlfriend says i still tear up during chamberlain's charge or pickett's charge there uh but you know i won't admit oh, that. It's very emotional. <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah. and it's funny too because the day before we were about to start filming because we filmed the summer of 92 
Ron Maxwell had a, a meeting with all his uh, heads of the departments, the camera crew, the sound crew, props, uh, I was history. And so he gave uh, his speech to us saying that I'm not here to make a documentary on the Battle of Gettysburg. I'm here to film The Killer Angels by Michael Shara. I'm here to uh, just bring alive these characters that Michael Shara did and hopefully somebody will come by and see this movie, read the book, and go to the battlefield and read more about it. And uh, he accomplished what he set out to do. He made a magnificent picture. He uh, got the people involved in the war. And so people started flocking to the battlefields, not only Gettysburg, but Kansasville, Fredericksburg, Shiloh, I mean, all over the attendance at these battlefields started uh, escalating. And so it, it, it added so much. And so, like I said, you got to thank Ron Maxwell for that film. You got Mike, Michael Shara. And of course, Jeb Shara now continues the legacy with uh, the prequel, Gods and Generals, and the sequel with uh, Last Full Measure. Right, right. They, I, I mean, you kind of talked about it, but is there something specifically special about the movie Gettysburg? that makes it stand out because there have been plenty of movies that came out about the civil war, but I don't think they capture people as much as Gettysburg. What, what is that? Well, thing you mentioned Gettysburg? earlier, Chamberlain, you tear up when Chamberlain gives his speech yeah. to the 20th name, you know, they're fighting for a cause. They're, they're fighting, you know, to free people. They're, they're doing something that, you know, has to be done on the other side of the coin. You're talking about, you know, Richard Jordan, Richard Jordan talking about Armistead talking about, you know, his family, talking about his relationship with Hancock, talking about uh, Lee and, and Virginia. I mean, you're talking about that, you know, it's just so many emotions are involved with that movie. So not only do the reenactors, you know, the men who, who, who love watching battle scenes, etc., but it also applies to a lot of women too, because of the emotions that are you know brought about in this film so hopefully you know people will read more about it so like i said it was just something special just uh working on this film and making friends with the actors and the reenactors also absolutely because we couldn't have done this movie without them it was just yeah. something special it all came together and on the battlefield the actual site where you know all this took place and a lot of these reenactors had ancestors who fought at that battlefield. So there was something special for them because they were honoring their ancestors, walking in the fields, following the footsteps of uh, those who had gone before them. And you developed a relationship with uh, Tom Berenger, right? Working with him. Oh, Tom and I hit it well. Uh, it was funny too, because I'm a big racing car buff. Okay, I love the Indianapolis 500. <laughs> I, I, I've attended you know, 14 Indianapolis 500s over the years. AJ Foyt was always my sports hero, okay? Awesome. And uh, when we were supposed to start filming the movie Gettysburg in 92, I didn't go to the, the Indy 500 that year because I had to be on call, so to speak. And so I'm watching the Indy 500 on TV and the phone rings. It's Tom Berenger. And uh, we have an answering machine. We screen all calls. And so I'm not going to miss the Indy 500. So I asked my wife to pick up the phone and talk to Tom Berenger. <laughs> and so she did. <laughs> So uh, she, she spoke to Tom for a little while, and then I called him back later on that day. But uh, Tom was a great guy. You know, he would pick my brain and everything. And then finally, you know, working with him and became good friends. And then later on down the road, uh, he decided to uh, do the film Rough Riders. And so he said to me, Pat, you know, you want to be in Rough Riders? Shave your beard, cut your hair, and uh, I'll take care of you. So we filmed that movie in 1996 down in Texas, Rough Riders. And it was something special. And I've been doing that movie throughout the whole picture, practically, but most people don't recognize me. Because they were, you know, Pat Falsey, General A.P. Hill with the beard and the hair and everything. Right. But for Tom, he said, you got to shave your beard, cut your hair really short. And, uh, you know, you want to keep the mustache, the traditional symbol of the fighting man, keep the mustache, because that was the style in 1898. So I did. And a lot of people don't recognize me because they expect the, uh, the AP Hill look. So I tell everybody, you want to see me in Rough Riders? You just look for Groucho Marx on horseback. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but Tom was great working on that. And it was like a mini reunion with Gettysburg. Right. Because Sam Elliott, you have right. Tom Berenger as Terry Roosevelt. You have uh, Sam Elliott, yeah. who's great as General Buford in Gettysburg. But then he plays Bucky O'Neill in uh, Rough Riders. And he got Buck. Buck Taylor, who was in Gettysburg, 
and then he's a rough rider. And you had the Wranglers who worked on Gettysburg and then, you know, Wranglers with the horses and everything on rough riders. So it was like a mini reunion, you know, dealing with that. It was great. And another connection in the rough riders, you know, we had to go through a boot camp and learn how to act as a soldier in 1898. We learned the weapons and of course, learn how to ride the horses cavalry style as a rough rider would. And so we got to do that and with uh, the boot camp. And it was something special because the horse that I rode in Rough Riders, the horse's name is Guy. Well, Cooper Huckabee, who played at Harrison the Spy or Scout, depending on your point of view, <laughs> rode that same horse in Gettysburg. And then a few years later in Gods and Generals, General Hancock, Brian Mallon, <laughs> rode that wow. same horse. And then years earlier, Richard Gere rode that same horse in Summersby. So uh, if that horse has a resume, I'm on it. Okay. Right. <laughs> that horse has a heck of a career right there. <laughs> That's fantastic. But uh, I, I enjoyed working on that film and uh, Gettysburg and as historical advisor on uh, Gods and Generals. And I just, you know, involved with the Civil War Roundtable of New York. And yeah. what I've been doing, uh, you know, I, I speak at roundtables. I, I do reenactments where Hill had participated. But one thing I've been doing these last several years is I'm very proud of the National Riding Stables in Gettysburg. I've been doing a special program for them to help them raise money for the horses because they have rescue horses. It's called Saddle Up with General Hill, where I talk about uh, famous generals and their war horses. And oh, then wow. I talk about uh, working on the movies with uh, some of the actors, with the Hollywood horses and, and so forth. And then uh, we raise money for the horses. And, um, you know, we have a raffle. And then whoever wins the raffle, I take them out on the battlefield and give them a tour of uh, Gettysburg on horseback so they can saddle up with General Hill. Oh, that's fantastic. We'll have to. Uh, where, where can people get more information about that or about you? Um, you have a website or... Yeah, patfalsywordpress.com. Try that. Okay. Okay. Or just Google me and then you'll find out more about me. And if you have a link to YouTube, you know, that'll go through. So you'll see me in action at reenactments. You'll see me uh, speaking at roundtables or at Gettysburg in the activity tent, you know, something along that line. And uh, the National Riding Stables, they're right there in Gettysburg. And then they'd love to hear from you. And they have their own rides you know, on the battlefield. And like I said, um, when this whole COVID thing yeah. is all over with, then we'll all get back in the saddle again with the reenacting and, uh, you know, everything else that uh, we all love to do. Absolutely. I actually have uh, not attended a reenactment in a kit. I've always been a spectator. So one of these days, I'm going to have to go out and actually oh, experience You have it. to do it. You really yeah. do, because it's great reading the books. Yeah. It really is. But then when you put the uniform on, and you're out there with the drill and then the maneuvers and the terrain and just to know what it feels like. I mean, they're not shooting real bullets at you, but with the smoke and getting yourself down and dirty and just, just living as close as possible as those, the soldiers did back then. And then coming back and rereading the books, you could experience a lot what the soldiers had gone through as best as possible in this day and age. So I, I definitely would recommend it. But you know, if, if you can't do it, then go to Reagan go to the battlefield and that's the most important thing walk the terrain because terrain dictates the way a battle is fought right right absolutely well it's been it's been great um one last question do you recommend any books for anyone who wants to learn more about ap hill or anything you just talked about on the civil war Oh, absolutely absolutely actually over the course of all these years only three books have ever been written about ap hill and the reason for that is because a lot of his papers, his military papers, were stored in an attic and they were eaten up by rats. Oh, wow. A lot of the, uh, his military papers. And unfortunately, a lot of his papers, his love letters that he had written to his wife throughout the course of the time was handed down from his wife to their you know, children, their little girls and stuff. And then when his last surviving girl was, knew her time was coming to an end, she decided to uh, destroy his love letters between you know, husband and wife. So really not that much has been written about A.P. Hill, but I would recommend the best one would be by Dr. James I. Robertson. It's called General A.P. Hill, The Story of a Confederate Warrior. I would say uh, that would be the one. And another one I would say is The Class of 1846 by Jack Waugh. And that covers a lot of people in there. Jackson, uh, George McClellan, of course, Hill. So uh, 
those two, Jack Waugh and uh, the main event would be uh, Dr. James Robertson, the late great Jack, you know, Bud Robertson, um, who had written, the, and the funny thing about it, he had written his book on A.P. Hill in uh, the 1980s, and then 20 years later, he writes a book, uh, the definitive book on Stonewall Jackson. So you have Hill and Jackson, two sides of the coin. So when you read the Hill book by Bud Robinson, you know, you have Hill's version of the feud between Hill and Jackson. And then when you read his book on General Jackson, then you have Jackson's view of the feud between Hill and, and, and Jackson. So it's, right. it's, it's, it's entertaining. It really is. And it's informative. And it, it's one way to uh, live history. Well, you've been a very successful actor and uh, living here in uh, New York City. Uh, I meet a lot of aspiring actors, actresses. Do you have any uh, last words of wisdom to anyone who's trying to get into this industry? Basically, uh, just read the books, go to the battlefields, you know, try to do as much as possible and uh, just, just walk the field. Because as I said, learn about the soldiers, learn about the families, learn about what motivated all of them and just, just keep on reading and uh, try to experience as much as possible what they had gone through by walking the fields because you can't understand the Civil War unless you walk the fields. That's the most important thing. And everybody be safe. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. We're getting to be about that time now. So thank, well, thank you, you so very much. much. It truly yeah. was an honor. And uh, like I said, we'll all try to keep uh, the memory of AP Hill alive known as Lee's Forgotten General. But uh, after this podcast, hopefully a lot of people will keep on reading about him and he won't be forgotten. Absolutely. That's the goal. Please stay in touch and hopefully we can do another interview like this on, you know, there's a plethora of other topics. So uh, please stay in touch. Thank well, you. Well, if so you need much. anything, you just tell AP Hill, he must come up and I'll be there. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a, a good night and the rest of your day. I hope you enjoyed the show while driving from job to job like loyal listener William Bennett, shoveling snow, facing Confederate Lancers at Valverde, fighting eyeball to eyeball in the cornfield at Antietam, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Thank you to Craig Duncan for the use of his great music. And please, if this episode barely satiated your thirst for Gettysburg, download the app Gettysburg, a nation divided with the code untold civil war, no spaces. Downloading the app helps them at Quantum Era, helps support this show, and gives you Gettysburg and augmented reality. What's not to like? Stay up to date by liking us on Facebook and following us on Instagram. And thank you for listening. Stay warm, and we'll see you on the next one.